Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm really, really pumped about <coughs> starting or restarting our series through 2 Timothy after taking that break last week and looking at Ruth chapter 1. Uh, by the way, today as you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, you're going to realize why we teach verse by verse through the Bible because this might be the greatest joy kill verse in all the Bible. Uh, <laughs> It is a really, really difficult passage, and I, I kind of laughed as I was reading through it and preparing, thinking, first of all, I was like, there's no way I'm preaching this on Mother's Day, and then second, it was like, oh boy, all right, but this is why we teach God's Word, because I, I honestly believe that no matter how hard the text is, God has something to say to all of us, and honestly, you'd probably never hear this passage preached in any Bible, or in any church, so uh, my goal today is to help teach through every part of the Scriptures. All right? Some of the funniest and saddest stories of all time are when people try to predict the end of the world type stories. So I just thought one of the ways to create some levity today is to give you what I think are the top three dumbest end of the world stories ever. Here's number one. On December 21st, and by the way, all these are true, not made up. On December 21st, 2012, you might remember this one, the Mayan calendar cycle ended and a ton of people thought that the world was going to come to an end that day. That's not the dumb part. The dumb part is how they thought it was going to happen. They thought that our world, Earth, was going to collide with an imaginary planet called, and I can't even pronounce the name, uh, Nibriu or something like that. You can't make this stuff up. Apparently that didn't happen. Number two, though, it even gets better. Number two is Harold Camping. Okay, my motto for Harold Camping is, when in doubt, try again. This dude predicted that the world was going to end 12 times. Now, I don't know how he figured this out, but somehow he decided to write a book every single time and publish it on why the world was going to end. And he did this based on what he called was numerology in the Bible. Tells me that he didn't know math very well because he messed that one up 12 times. And I think he's gonna go for number 13 soon, so look for his book coming out, Harold Camping. Number three, my favorite one of all time is this. It's the prophet chicken from Leeds, England. Can't make this stuff up. Apparently, the egg came out of the chicken and inscribed on the egg was that Christ was coming soon. And people lost their minds over it. Some of them had scrambled eggs for brains. There you go. All right. The point is this. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. I think that's what you're going to see. Maybe, maybe you found yourself confused lately over all the conspiracy theories going around. What do I believe? What do I not believe? What's true? Is there any truth in the metaverse right now, right? The confusion isn't new. Since the Bible was written, people have twisted the truth in order to control a narrative for different outcomes, right? If you, if you know anything at all, if you know anything at all, you know that there's nothing more important in this world than truth. And the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then it is the only truth that we should base our lives on. You see, there is something built inside of every single one of us that inherently understands that there is a barometer or a moral code in all of our lives. That code is built on the foundation of the Bible. Even if you're not a Bible-believing person, you can go anywhere in the world and people know the difference between right and wrong. We call this objective morality or objective truth. The idea is... <clears throat> that it came from outside of us and it informs what life should look like here on earth. The only way it can be objective is if it comes from outside of us. In Paul's day, 
there were tons of people trying to tear down the foundation of the truth. And when that happens, you go from order to disorder. Matter of fact, that's the, that's the theme of the Bible. You go from order, God takes what's disordered, makes it orderly through Genesis 1, and then sin enters the world and it all unravels back into disorder. And we see this happening today. Listen, the big idea, again, is if you don't have truth, you don't have harmony. This is what we're experiencing, where we trade in the truth for my truth. And the problem is, is if everybody has their own truth, you have no truth at all, don't you? Right? Because it's yours and mine or whatever. Today, I want to show you a better way. I want to show you a way that's built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. It's a truth that's worth building your life on. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All right, you ready? Here we go. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. All right, really quickly, in order to get this passage right, we have to establish what the last days are, right? These nimrods, uh, that's a biblical term if you go back to the book of Genesis, got it wrong over and over and over again. And so let me just stand on my soapbox for just a second, and let me just, let me confess to you, the last two years for many of us have been devastatingly hard, really hard. And yet, I believe that we have a pretty terrible view of history. Because this isn't the first pandemic that the world has ever gone through, and that should actually give you hope that people of past generations have made it through this, and they've come out stronger, and we will too. Fat, uh, rewind 100 years ago, almost to the day, and do you know what you find? You find this, that there was a war that was wrecking the world. There were new technologies called the telegram and different things that were moving forth in this enlightenment period that overpromised and underdelivered, distorted truth, and had people up in a frenzy from conspiracy theories, and the Spanish flu was raging. It's almost like a mirror image into today's problems, and they made it through. Not only that, we literally live <clears throat> in the easiest time in human history. The world is not getting worse if you lived a 1,000 years ago, your life expectancy would probably be about half of what it is today. They didn't have clean water, and Christians were literally getting their heads cut off, all right? Next time we think that the world is upside down and everything's coming to an end, we might want to go revisit history. With that in mind, we need to figure out when the last days actually are so that we can be ready for them. So I told, I'm going to tell you when the last days are. You ready? Write it down. The last days are now. It seems like a contradiction in thought, but it's not. According to the Bible, we live in this thing called the inner advent period. We live in between the advents or between the times, okay? Theologically, the first advent was Christmas when Jesus was born. That's why you think about the Christmas season, we celebrate the advent. The second advent is when he comes again. The in-between time, the inner advent period, is what theologians call the already not yet period. Jesus has already established his kingdom, and yet it's not yet realized. One day he will come back, and he will establish his kingdom forever on earth as it is in heaven. That in-between period is what we live in now. How do I know that? Look at verse 5. Here's what he says. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, which we'll get to this verse, avoid such people. He's speaking in the present tense to Timothy. He says, in the last days, you're going to have difficulty and avoid those people now. Meaning, Timothy, you're in the last days. That makes sense? See, in other words, in other words, if you look back at verse 3, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. As you pursue Jesus, things are going to be hard because the world is working against you. That's Paul's point. 
Listen, as you run in a direction towards Jesus, it's almost like you're running against the streams of life. The only example I can think of with this, it's like you're a salmon swimming upstream in Alaska and there's big old grizzlies just waiting for you to jump. That's what life feels like sometimes. That's what my life feels like right now. And for some reason, we're always surprised when difficulty comes, aren't we? I feel like we expect that the Christian life is going to be easy and everything's going to go our way and it's going to be butterflies, rainbows, and unicorns. But the in-between, according to the Bible, is where the struggle is. And if I can just tell you, it's in the in-between that that's where God meets us the most. Because I think that it's in those moments. I I don't think that. I, I feel that. The last two weeks have felt that. It's in those moments where everything seems to be stripped away, and you're in the valley of life that God seems to meet you there and remind you of his goodness and his pleasure over you. Listen to what Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. For some odd reason, we think that people should have good, easy lives in the Christian faith, and yet that's not at all what anybody's life looked like in the Bible. Let's just do a little survey through Hebrews 11. <clears throat> some of them were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. Y'all, it was not easy for them, right? Things went pretty bad. And yet, it says the world wasn't worthy of them because they lived for a better kingdom. Here's the key. Anytime you have people, you will have problems, okay? Anytime you have people, you will have problems. And yet, at the same time, people matter And the way that you live in this reality is to live in the messiness of life. If you want to be safe in this life, then stay away from people. But if you want to do that, you'll never actually make a difference in this world. One of the old proverbs that I love is this, where the oxen are, I'm sorry, where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but increase comes by the strength of an ox. Here's what he's saying. The point is clear. If you want a clean barn, don't have any animals. Sell them all. And yet, if you want to achieve anything in life, you need the animals. You need the messiness. Listen, if you want a clean church, don't go deep and don't attract new people. Keep your little small group, hang out together, have everything in common in your your homogenous groups where there's no no diversity at all, and you'll be clean, and you'll never make an impact. Keep everything safe. Definitely don't teach the Bible and don't tell people that what's hard about this life, tell them everything that they want to hear. Matter of fact, just don't do what I'm doing right now. (laughs) You know what that gets you, though, though? It gets you the appearance of godliness, but then people's lives are going to fall apart behind the scenes. Listen, over the last hundred years, we have done this social experience experiment called cultural Christianity, and you know what it's done? It's absolutely wrecked people's lives, and I love you far too much to do that. I realized that we could grow a bigger church a lot quicker if I didn't teach the scriptures. But you know what? I want to be honest with you. I'd rather have a smaller church and see lives that are changed than have huge crowds with train wrecked lives. The gospel is messy because it invites honesty and it's worth it. It's worth it. So no matter, no matter what you're going through, 
I want to enter in with you because I believe that when we enter into the mess, that's when good things start to happen. Like Edmund Burke said, when good people do nothing, bad people take over. Verse 2. Here's where it gets comical. Try to preach this. For people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. This was my Mother's Day text. (laughs) Praise God, I didn't do that, right? Man, this is a list, isn't it? Some of you are sitting there thinking, yup, 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 that's what culture feels like, that's where we're living. Listen, every single culture that has ever existed has made this statement sound like they feel because, honestly, it is what culture feels like. I could spend all week long on just one of these, but before we do that, before we Point the finger in judgment around us. Let me just make a confession to you that every adjective in this list can be attributed to me. I mean, I'm a millennial, which is a synonym for spoiled brat, right? Don't believe me? The greatest generation ever created space travel. My generation created the selfie, (laughs) right? Y'all, sometimes it's raining outside and... I had to go to the gym to run on the treadmill, and there's nothing better than spending an hour on a treadmill at the gym because the gymstagrammers come out in full swing. I'm just telling you, the guys spend more time in the mirror flexing than they do working out. And the girls, the girls post everything on the gram because if it's not there, it didn't happen. Now I know, some of you like Sean are laughing. Here, let me just tell you, Sean. <laughs> Next time you laugh, just remember you created us, okay? <laughs> The most convicting statement I think ever made is by John Owen, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. So write this down, before the sin can be out there, we have to recognize that it's in here. I want to change that pronoun. I am a lover of self. I am a lover of money. I am proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, and unholy. You get it? In my worst of days, I have been all of these things. Maybe to some of you. But I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that we don't admit that. I think the problem is is that we fake it. I think that's where verse 5 comes into play, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Y'all, when you try to act like you have it all together, you know what you do is you suck the life and the power out of God. You deny his godliness. Do you realize that God unleashes his power through transparency in a jacked up life? Guys, we have to stop acting like we are perfect, and we got to start acting like we are real. We need to spend more time being the servants of the church than the star of the church, because when we act like we have it all together, we become unrelatable, and nobody can measure up to your highlight reel. The power to change is in the power to be real. And the only way that you will ever be real is when you're captivated by the power of God. And the power of God is found in the Word of God. See, when you start to compromise the word of God to make things more palatable and more politically correct, what you do is you strip its power away. I know that we don't like the truth, but the truth will set you free, and the truth is where the power of God comes alive in our lives. You have to be willing to face the music, and the music is that all of us, all of us is this list. See, if you're going to fake it, if you're going to distort it, 
You might look godly, but I'm just going to be honest with you, you're not. Look, one of the things, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people with a lot of knowledge tend to look really godly, and yet the measurement for godliness is not how much you know, but how much you're willing to submit to God's power and authority over your life. I don't care if you have a PhD in theology, if you're not willing to live out this, you don't get it. Now watch this, every single attribute, notice this, every single attribute that Paul mentions here are me-centered. They're me-centered. When you replace God's power with self-centeredness, you move from gratefulness to entitlement. That's what these things are. You notice them, right? If you go back up, the entitlement, they're lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, they're entitlement. They don't listen to their parents. They're ungrateful, unholy. Keep reading those things, and what you see is that they've replaced Jesus with themselves. I mean, this is exactly what most of us are experiencing right now. If you don't listen to another word that I say, listen to this. The answer to culture is the Bible. That's the answer. The answer to culture is the Bible. The power to change isn't in strategies or our abilities. It's in our ability to submit to the truth and obey what it actually says. Listen, if you want to make life about you, you will destroy the church, period. Think about it. I think I heard this illustration the other, other week, and I felt like it fits so well. Like, think about a wedding, right? At a wedding, you, you imagine that, that the doors open, and the bride starts to walk down, and, and everybody turns to look at her, and the groom is sitting right here, and, and, and the most beautiful, spectacular thing you've ever seen, and then the best man sitting over here, and he looks over, and he starts winking at her, and he's like coming down, and, and you'd punch him in the face, wouldn't you? The, the reason is, is traditionally, and even in weddings today, the best man's job is to get out of the way. It's to get out of the way to make room for the bride and the groom, because it's all about them in that moment. Listen, the church is the same. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride, and every single time that we step in the way to get glory, we're like the best man standing in front at a wedding that's not about you. That's what it looks like. To strip God away from his glory is to pull God out of the center and make it about you. It's not about us. Our job is to serve, and the point is to point people to the bride and the groom. And listen, this is a slippery slope. Slippery slope, it's little decisions over time that tend to make our eyes come off of Jesus, and they come on to ourselves. And when that happens, we become the center of our life, and Jesus fades into the background. And that's the point. We become lovers of self more than we love God. By the way, when you love yourself more than you love God, you'll start to leverage people to get what you want. I'll give you an example is when you, <coughs> when you love your stuff more, you'll leverage money, or you'll leverage people to get more money, and then people become an object. See, this is how it works over and over again. The key is not to not doing this stuff, is to put Jesus back at the center. It's not to avoid doing bad things. It's to put Jesus back at the center. And here's how you do it according to this passage. Community and transparency. Community and transparency. Living in community creates the space for you to be known. It's, it's in that space that you become safe. You become known and you become whole. By the way, this is why we push small groups. We don't push small groups to have another event. We push it because we believe that community is the space where you become transparent, known, and whole. It's why marriage is so valuable. Listen, marriage is risky. You become vulnerable, but in your vulnerability, that's where you enter into a genuine relationship. 
And it's in that genuine relationship that you get safety. You see, it's marriage that actually makes you become free because you become naked and unafraid, if you will. You become completely seen, and in your, in your, com- your completeness and your wholeness, things become valuable again. Uh, guys, it's that safety. In the worst moments of your life, that allows you to walk away and be okay. I'm just telling you, my wife right now, sitting in a hospital for the next six weeks or four more, we've gone through two, she knows the safety of our marriage is such that my kids are going to be okay and our relationship's going to be okay. She can be exposed in every single way, but she doesn't have to worry about us. That's what relationships do. Now watch this, the same thing is true about the church. When we give ourselves to community, it is risky. I'm just being honest with you. I know it's risky. I know it's risky because I've been hurt quite a few times by opening up our lives to people who have weaponized things about us in order to destroy us. Can I just give you a secret real quick? We're messed up. And if you expect me as your pastor to be perfect, I'm just, you're going to be utterly disappointed. I promise you. So if you're willing to weaponize my imperfections, have at it. But you know what? I refuse to not be transparent with you because I believe that wholeness happens when we give ourselves to one another. So I want you to know everything about me because I want you to know that the life that we live, even in the struggle, is worth it. So people keep asking me, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm tired. I'm stressed out. And honestly, it's hard. But you know what? We still trust the Lord. He's really good. And we're going to make it through this. I told a family this the other day whenever they asked me why I preached last week. I said, because we have to keep going. And he looked at me, he's like, man, I really appreciate you telling me that because sometimes I just want to give up. And the reality is we got to keep going. We got to love our families well and we got to keep going. Authentic community creates a space for wholeness, but you've got to be willing to enter into it. You got to be willing to give yourself to it. That's why at City Church, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to check your mask at the door walk in and act like a hypocrite. You know why? Because I'm the greatest of all of them, all right? This place isn't for perfect people. It's a hospital for sinners. And if you feel too messed up to be here, welcome to the party, all right? The only thing you can't do is have the appearance of godliness without actually being godly because you'll suck the power right out of this place. Listen, there's something super powerful about authentic community that checks its ego at the door and it's ready to receive what God has. Now, here's the warning. It's really easy to fake this stuff. I think that's Paul's point. These people had the appearance of godliness. They had it all. You have to be humble enough to check your own heart. I promise you, we will create the culture in the space to where it's okay to not be okay. I will always lead in transparency and honesty, and I will always teach the word in here, but you have to be willing to enter into it too. You've got to be risky enough to enter in, because if you don't, if you fake it, you will destroy lives, but it'll be your life that you destroy, because, watch this, people might like you, but they're going to like the fake version of you, and that gets old over time. I've lived that life, trying to be the college athlete and do it all. And, you know, people liked this fake version of me, but I was empty and hollow inside. When you fake it, you rob yourself of the ability of being whole. You might think that things are good, but they're not. I'm just telling you. 
You were either going to love God or you were going to replace God with your stuff and yourself. And when this happens, it's subtle, but you can write this down. When, you, <clears throat> when love for God is replaced with love of self, these deadly things will start to surface. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They won't love good, they will love what makes them happy. Then they will substitute Jesus for pleasure, and then they will become controlled by it. And when this happens, they will start to prey on people to get what they want. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive <clears throat> at a knowledge of the truth. Look, this is the definition of religion. It creates all the right looks and the heart is wicked. It's what the Pharisees look like. They had all the knowledge in the world, but no heart change. One of the scariest things in the world are people who have a ton of knowledge, and yet they never seem to arrive at the truth. They end up weaponizing the Bible to get whatever they want. Listen, I'm just telling you, when culture abandons the gospel, women and children always get hurt. Now, whenever the gospel flourishes, vulnerable people always get lifted up. Think about it. The first century, Jesus gave the vulnerable dignity. Even the Western world, when they've applied the gospel to their lives, have created equality for the most vulnerable. It's religious people who have always oppressed the vulnerable and taken advantage of women and children. Say what you want, but nobody in history has done more to lift up the vulnerable than Jesus. And when we abandon Jesus for culture, we get survival of the fittest, mask in the name of progress, and everybody gets hurt. Listen, it's the gospel that says men need to stay committed to their families. They need to die to themselves to lift people up. It's the gospel that says that we should stay married to our wives for the rest of our lives, and that we should stay uh, monogamous in our relationships. It's culture that says you do whatever you want. Abandon your responsibilities and do whatever makes you happy. Do you know who pays the price when men act like that? Women. Think about it. I, I don't need to tell you the percentage of people that are incarcerated today because their dads weren't present in their homes. When men act like men, when people act like gospel-centered people, the entire society flourishes. But when men abdicate their responsibilities in the name of progress, culture uh, takes over and people's lives get wrecked. People are confused. Gender is fluid. Babies don't matter. Families start suffering. Depression is at an all-time high. Maybe it's time that we abandon progress and go back to the gospel. The power of God is found in the word of God, and the word of God should make you a humble servant. So listen to me. If God's word doesn't humble you, I don't care how much you know, you don't get it. If it doesn't make you a servant, I don't care how much you know, you don't get it. If you take advantage of people and you weaponize the Bible against them, I don't care how much knowledge you have, you don't get it. You're a Pharisee. That's the point. We have to take the words of the Bible and the way of the Bible and transform us from the inside out. We need to spend more time cultivating a relationship with Jesus than we do telling everybody else about Jesus. <clears throat> we need to trade our platforms for our altars. We need to spend more time on our knees confessing to Jesus than in our pulpits preaching about him. Because poor leadership always takes advantage of people. It preys on the weak and the vulnerable. It surrounds itself with men who become yes men and do whatever they want. It isolates itself from accountability, just so you know. Because I know my own heart. 
I have set up what I call moral fences in my life, and I've set them so far back that if I fall over the fence, I won't fall over the cliff. So in my life, I have elders who have the authority to fire me at any time. They read my passage of scripture in my sermon notes before I ever preach them. They have performance reviews for me. I never travel alone. I never stay in hotel rooms alone. I have screen time limits on my phone that I cannot access certain things. My wife has access to my phone at all times, no matter what, and I don't meet with people alone. You might think I'm crazy, and I don't care. Because I love you, I love my family far too much to mess this thing up. And every single person on this staff, I believe is better at their job than I ever could be. I think Dustin is a phenomenal preacher. I love sitting under the word whenever he preaches it, and I think that he does a better job than me, and I don't, I don't care. Like, I'm not, I'm not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, insecure about that. I love that. I want you to hear God's word, and I'm not insecure about it. I think Jim and Clayton are great strategists, and if it wasn't for them, our church wouldn't be growing the way that it is right now. You, you see, see what I'm saying? I don't need the credit, nor do I want it. I don't want to mess this thing up, and I know that I'm capable of doing so, so I set up safeguards in my life. Listen, if you are always reading the Bible, but you're never letting the Bible read you, there is a problem. And because the spirit of God is in this book and it's living and active, listen, it's going to cut you in certain places and it's going to hurt. <clears throat> it's going to push against your ego. It's going to cut you so that it can heal you like a surgeon does in ways that you can never imagine. We need to recognize that the problem isn't out there. The problem is inside of us and we need to set up systems or fences, if you will, to keep us safe. You know that there are two different things that a fence can do. A fence can keep people out. Right? You can set up fences for security. But that's not the only function of a fence. A fence can actually create space for you to be free. Imagine that you lived right on Highway 9 and your kids wanted to play in the front yard. You would set up a fence for them so that they have parameters for safety. The Christian life is about setting up fences in your life so that you can operate within the freedom in which God had created you. Like it's not legalistic to say, I want boundaries so that I can operate in freedom. It's legalistic to say, I want boundaries so you can stay out of my life. God wants you to set up great moral fences so that you can play well in his kingdom and thrive like my kids will in our backyard whenever there's a fence keeping them safe. That's what living in the Christian life looks like. <clears throat> if you don't build moral fences into your life, you will eventually stray into the streets and that's where people take advantage. And listen, there's absolutely nothing worse than a church who takes people out of bondage to bring them back into a church bondage. God wants us to set each other free. Now, that's the bad news. There is some good news in this passage. It's kind of masked in bad news, so let me try to pull it out for you. Here's what verse 8 says. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, <clears throat> men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was to those two men. Great text, right? You want to know the truth? There's nothing new under the sun. That's Paul's point. Paul is saying that nothing you're experiencing right now is new. It's happened since the beginning of time, and it's never worked. That's the good news. The good news is that God will always have the final word, that Jesus has purchased his church by his blood. 
And he has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Y'all, it's super easy to read in your own experience and get frustrated and say something like, none of us have ever gone through anything like this before. You are standing on the shoulders of giants who have and they have persevered and God is going to build his church and he has continued to do that. You realize that City Church's story did not start on August 12th, 2018. It started in AD 33 when Jesus got up out of the grave and he has been building this church and his story since the beginning of time. And it happens all the time. Like I got a message the other day from a guy who I played football with. I mean, like he, he wrote me this message talking about how much of an impact I, he, that I made on his life. And yet I'm thinking in the back of my head, you played for the Seahawks. And I had like you've influenced my life in ways that you'll never imagine. He writes me. He goes, man, I haven't talked to you in 10 years, but I've been watching. And God has made me want to be a better man by watching City Church. And sometimes God's like, hey, I want to pull back the curtains and show you how I'm connecting all the dots. And City Church, you are making a far greater impact than you will ever know. See, these two men, Jewish literature, by the way, these two guys aren't named in the Bible. But Jewish literature will tell us that these two guys were the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Their job was to every time that the 10 plagues would happen, every time that Moses would do a plague, their job as a magician was to reverse that and make it like a sleight of hand, make it like they could replicate it. What they were doing is they were taking people's eyes off the power of God and bringing them back onto themselves and deceiving people in such a way that they took away the power. And the Egyptians stopped looking at God and looked at the magicians. I can only imagine how angry Moses would have been. These were the false teachers. They overpromised and underdelivered, and they suddenly took people's eyes off of God and onto themselves. But here's the, remi- here's the reminder from God. God says, I will have the last word. That's the point, guys. When everything seems to be going awry, just keep going. Keep being faithful because success is faithfulness in the same direction over a long period of time, recognizing that God is the one writing the story. And in the faithfulness of his church, Jesus will build his church. And these people, they will not have the last word. See, people may have the power to convince you of a lot of things, but they don't have the power of God. The power of God is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Listen, friends. The world can offer you a lot of stuff, but it cannot offer you God's power. It cannot change your heart. It cannot give you joy. It can give you temporary success and satisfaction, but it cannot give you joy. If you want real transformation, it's not found in good teaching. It's not found in great programs. And it's not found in prosperity. It's found in the gospel. It's found in the gospel that gives you a hope and a security that goes beyond this world. One of the things you might not know is that this week... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on top of everything else we've been going through, I preached a funeral of a 22-year-old girl who committed suicide last week in this building right here. And I'll tell you the same thing that I told her parents. The only thing that gives you hope is that these 22 years are not all that there is. That we live for eternity and God will have the last word over your life. It doesn't matter if Janice and Jembrys, who have the worst names in the history of the world, came in here and started telling you other things, and they were actually able to build something in a temporary way. It doesn't matter if they can offer you the world, because Jesus has overcome the world. See, you can reach for anything in this world, and I'm not going to lie to you. It might make your life a little easier in the moment, but at the end of the day, 
It becomes a substitute for Jesus, and that is the main sin of the Bible, is we take him out of the center, and we, like the best man, step in front. And when we do that, when we do that, eventually, eventually we rob him of his glory. Here's my question for you. What's that thing for you? What's that adjective that describes what takes Jesus out of the center of your life and puts you in the center? Is it morality? For a lot of people in the cultural South, that's what cultural Christianity looks like. Is like, look at me, the shell of my moral life, and then we're falling apart on the inside. See, that subtly becomes your godliness, but it lacks power to actually change you. The power to change is found in the gospel, not in your ability to be a good person. What is it? What is it for you? Is it legalism? Is it morality? What is it? If it's anything other than Jesus, it might give you happiness, but it will not satisfy your soul. Like, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other grounds is sinking sand. That is the Christian life. The power to change is found in the confidence of Jesus' blood and his resurrection. So let me just end the way that I began. If you're going to stand, you have to stand on the firm foundation of God's word. Because if you don't, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. Let me pray for you. Father, in this moment, with a tough text like this, God, I pray that you would give us courage and encouragement to know that no matter what happens in our life and in this world, you have overcome the world. So we take heart. We take heart despite our circumstances that there is something better. Lord, like Hebrews 11 says, they didn't receive what was promised in this life and yet the world was unworthy of them because they lived for a better kingdom, a better home. God, I pray that we would have the courage to live for a better home, to not be perfect or even act like it, but in our brokenness, give ourselves to one another and allow you to transform us from the inside out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.